You know, last week I shared about how when I was baptized, I had to give my testimony. Testimony is something that, uh, that we like to do in church every once in a while because it gives an opportunity to share about what God is doing. It's not about, uh, it's not about bragging about ourselves, but it's about pointing what God is doing in our lives. And so I was able to share about my, uh, my baptism, but um, the way it usually happened at our old church was uh, that they would record on video what your testimony was, and they would cut it down. They'd edit out your blurbs, and if you wanted to start over, you could. But I had to do it live, and I shared about how I was nervous to do it, and I was shaking the paper. I just stared at the paper the whole time. But uh, the part I didn't share about the story that I'm sharing this week is that I was so excited once I got that over with. I wasn't shaking from fear anymore. I was shaking from excitement. And I'm not usually a super uh, exuberant person as far as physical gestures went, but I just, when I was in the water, I was just so excited. I had to do something to show how excited I was. So as I came out of the water, I did like a Superman, like punch jump. Uh, and it was, felt so good and it felt so great. The, uh, the pastor who uh, was baptizing me, his name was Judd, and I became friends and actually worked for him later. Uh, he told me that my, my celebration almost turned into an uppercut. And I probably would have knocked him out because I was coming out with so much force. And so thankfully, in God's grace, it didn't happen because that wouldn't be a good start, especially since I, wanted to, I eventually did work there. But the baptism I had was, was the, it, the act itself wasn't a miracle. I wouldn't have said that through being baptized that all of a sudden I was, I was dead and I was alive. I already had faith in Jesus. So the act of baptism itself didn't save me per se but it sure was an important moment in my walk with Jesus. It, was the, it marked the beginning of a fully committed life to him. Have I been perfect ever since? Well, yeah, of course. Um, no, obviously not. I use sarcasm. I hope that's all right. But if it's not, too bad. But, uh, but my life felt different ever since. It felt like there was a line in the sand. It began something new. And my allegiance was totally to Jesus as Lord. I said it publicly for the first time ever. I said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and the rest of my life is committed to him. When Jesus began his public ministry, he didn't actually have the same issue that he had to go through that I did, in that I had to confess my sins. That I had to, I had to show that I was no longer going to live a rebellious life, that I wanted to follow him. And yet, Jesus still began his ministry through the act of baptism. He didn't have anything to be forgiven. He hadn't done anything wrong. But he still began his ministry with his baptism. For the next few months, we are uh, going through a series called The Life of Jesus. And uh, the book that we are studying is the Gospel of Mark. And uh, before we get into the text, though, it's important to understand, I think, especially since this is an introduction to it, that we should understand and familiarize ourselves with the Gospel and with the background of the Gospel. And so Mark's gospel is one of four uh, gospel accounts. And so the, the message that they have is the same, but they tell it in different ways and for different purposes. But Mark's gospel is the fastest-paced gospel that there is. It's the shortest, but it's also, uh, it's also the fastest in the way it was written. And it highlights Jesus as the Messiah, who was rejected by the religious authorities of the day. And all the while, all throughout, it shows what authentic discipleship, which means being a follower of Jesus, what it actually looks like. 
and it was like, most likely the first gospel account written. And, uh, and it's the shortest and fastest paced. Uh, Mark has this thing where he writes the word immediately, very frequently. And we'll, we, there's even one in the story today, but it's almost like he can't wait for the transition. So he just says, immediately they were somewhere else. The Spirit immediately did this to show that kind of urgency that he has. He can't wait around for any of the, the, the in-betweens. He goes straight from event to event, from miracle to miracle, all the way, running all the way through to, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end of his life and his resurrection. And so we are going to be in this series from now until Easter Sunday, uh, which sounds like a lot, but Mark has 16 chapters, and that's less than 16 Sundays with uh, a couple other things that are going on. So we're not going to be able to cover every single verse and every single word in there. And in trying to decide how I was going to format this, I'm going to try something new. It's an experiment. If it doesn't work, I'll change it halfway through, or probably a quarter of the way through. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and do it by uh, things that happened uh, in Jesus' life. So today we're, we're looking at the beginning of his ministry. Next week we're going to look at uh, three different passages about him calling his disciples. And then uh, probably spend a couple Sundays looking at healing. There's a whole bunch of different healings that Jesus does. So we're going to try and look at uh, a few different parts of his healing ministry and what it means for us today. So that's the experiment. We're going to try it. And the reason I'm calling it an experiment is because you can change it. People expect you to fail if you're doing an experiment, and that's okay. So if I make mistakes along the way, we'll learn together and figure this out. So as I said, each of the different gospel accounts has a different focus. So Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, focuses on Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew uh, wrote it very specifically to a Jewish audience. And so he covers a lot of things that, that Jewish people would have really liked. And then Luke, as a, uh, as a Greek, as a Gentile, uh, wrote about Jesus as the one who welcomes the outsider, which makes sense because he was a Gentile. He was an outsider. And John emphasizes Jesus as the one who ushers in the kingdom of God. And then Mark, Mark is all about Jesus as the Messiah who saves us and offers us a restored relationship with him. So it's all about how Jesus saves us, saves all kinds of people. And actually, the whole gospel of Mark, it's interesting, is a beginning. It, doesn't, uh, it, end, or it begins really rapidly, and then it kind of ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. But the whole thing is about a beginning. It's, it's basically, this is the start, and then the church runs off after there. Uh, Luke wrote uh, uh, the gospel of Luke almost as a part one, and then Acts as a part two, which was the Acts of the, the Holy Spirit, or it could even be called Acts of the Church. Um, but... Uh, in the same way, Mark is almost like a start, and then Acts and the rest of the New Testament takes on where it leaves off. And so the gospel is actually the foundation of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. It shows us where, what this good news is and what Jesus did for people. So who is Mark is a natural question. Where this, the gospel is uh, spoken, or it's entitled after him, and he's the writer, but who is he? Mark uh, is someone we don't actually know very much about. Uh, people during this day, they didn't have the same kind of inclinations and the same desires to write things the same way that we did. So Mark doesn't actually write any information about him. He doesn't want to be known. He wants Jesus to be known. And so he doesn't really write about him, or he doesn't talk about himself at all. And so we don't know exactly who he is, but through extra-biblical uh, information and evidence, we can see that he was probably somebody that was really close to Peter. 
He was probably a younger man that, that heard Peter preach all the time. And uh, he recorded events as told by Peter. We see a lot of Peter's perspective in Mark. And the evidence seems that he wasn't personally an eyewitness to Jesus, but he was right next to a person who was an eyewitness of everything Jesus did. And so it was written uh, as a response to the church going through some hardships. The church was being persecuted and the church was being scattered. And they were starting to question, what is our faith about? They were starting to lose some of the people that had been around during the time of Jesus. And it's interesting because it wasn't written immediately after Jesus died. It was actually written quite a few years later. As many as 40 or 50 years after Jesus had died and rose again. Which seems really weird to us. But back then, writing wasn't something that was very easy to do. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't inexpensive to do. But the church was so excited to go and tell other people about Jesus they didn't feel like they had time to write anything down. They talked about it a lot. They preached about it a lot. And they told things over and over and again. They were an oral culture. So they would have remembered things almost identically. They would have remembered things almost perfectly by telling it over and over and over again. And so that, this is coming at the point where some of these first-person eyewitnesses were starting to die. And people that were hearing about Jesus were starting to wonder, well, what actually happened? What was the real story behind it? And so that's what this gospel account is. It was writing down in a, in a Greco-Roman world what had started all of this uh, spreading of the gospel. And so after Mark, uh, he was probably the first one. The others probably followed suit. The others, uh, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, took some of the content from Mark and then uh, wrote their own versions and their own thing. And it's the different versions of the gospel isn't that the story was different. But the way that Jewish people would write was it was about the message that was behind things. So they would actually sometimes change numbers and change details in order to make it so that their point would come across. Because for them, it was more about the story behind the story, the purpose of the story rather than the written details, which as Western thinkers... This makes no sense to us. We want a textbook that's factually what actually happened. If there was 12 people, we want to say 12 people, not there are about 14 people. We want to know exactly how things work, but that wasn't how it was. And so the others adapted things to suit their own message behind it. And so now let's begin to look at Jesus' life as recorded by Mark. I'm reading out of uh, Mark 1, 1 to 15, out of the NIV, 2011. And it'll be on the screen behind you, or feel free to swipe there in your iBible or turn there in your hard copy Bibles and follow along with me. Let's go. The first verse, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison and Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Well, that's a long passage, and I could preach 15 sermons on it, but I'm not going to. I've got one. But Mark starts off the whole gospel with this intro, with this, this first verse telling basically the title of the whole gospel. He's saying it is about the good news of Jesus. That's what the whole thing is about. It's about the good news of Jesus. That's what gospel means. It means good news. And so the good news is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Now the Messiah and Christ, both words mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. And it would have sounded strange to Greek ears because for them, a title is, uh, is, a, is somewhat uh, similar to a proper name. So for them, hearing that he was Christ, that he was the anointed one, there should have only been the king, which was Caesar. There shouldn't, have been, there shouldn't have been more than one. And so Jesus appeared as this totally different king than they could have possibly imagined. And so Mark goes and spends the rest of the gospel showing this and explaining this. And it's interesting because uh, often when we talk about Jesus, uh, he's talked about as Jesus Christ, which almost makes it sound like it's his last name. And sometimes we think, well, is it, was it Mary Christ and Joseph Christ that had Jesus Christ? Is that, is that how it worked? But that's, that's not how it worked. Jesus uh, didn't really have a last name that we know of. He would have been called uh, Jesus, son of Joseph the carpenter, son of whatever, son of whatever. But uh, his, his uh, surname is unknown, but his title was Christ. It was a way of understanding not only who he was, but what he was, what his role was. And then after this quick introduction, Mark quotes Isaiah, which uh, it, this Isaiah passage is actually from a few different places. It's a mishmash of different verses, which uh, Jewish people at the time would have recognized, but we are not quite as literal in the Bible as they were. And it was from Exodus, Isaiah, and Malachi, which was uh, actually the three big parts of the Old Testament uh, the Hebrew Bible. Exodus was uh, part of the Torah. It was part of the, the most important uh, books of Moses. And then Isaiah was the greater prophets. And then Malachi was the lesser prophets or minor prophets. And so he's quoting from three very important books to show that the whole of the Old Testament points towards Jesus. He's using that one powerful section to bring uh, the whole weight of the Old Testament behind Jesus. This is Mark's quick way of going. He says, here's a couple of real short passages. The whole Old Testament supports Jesus as the Christ, which is really easy to miss. <laughs> but he talks about uh, preparing the way for the Lord is the way the NIV renders it, which seems like it's about John at first glance. But again, in the way that Mark moves, he has so much that is written in so little. This actually has a double meaning. 
John prepares the way for Jesus, but the other part is that Jesus prepares the way for us to have a relationship with him. And so John's ministry was to prepare people for Jesus. He called them to repentance. He called them to prepare themselves for the Lord. And then Jesus came, and he actually makes a way for us to have a relationship with him. He literally prepares the way for us to have reconciliation with him. And so Jesus also prepared the way for us to follow after him into his new life through his life and his ministry. And then in verses 4 to 7, John appears in the wilderness, and he's preaching this baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins in the Jordan River. And again, as Western, uh, Western people, this doesn't seem that remarkable. They say, okay, we baptize people in churches. That's what happens. But for, for Jewish people, this would have been completely unthinkable. This actually would have been completely offensive. Because in, uh, back in this day, the only people that were baptized into uh, the Hebrew faith would have been people that were considered unclean. So people of other nations other than Israel. So if somebody wanted to dedicate themselves to following after Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, then they would have had to have been baptized. And uh, a story to illustrate this was uh, Naaman in the Old Testament. He was told if he wanted to be cleansed of his leprosy, to go and baptize, go dunk himself, to baptize himself in the Jordan River, and he would be cleansed. And so, uh, and he was offended at this. He says, well, what's wrong with our water and where I'm from? Why do I have to, in this water? But it was a sign of obedience to God. John calling people of Israel to respond through baptism would have been unthinkable. But in only the way that that God can move and his spirit can move so powerfully, they do respond. They don't act offended and they don't say, who are you? And he doesn't have to go to them. It says John was in the wilderness and they came out in droves to him. So why, why did this happen? Well, the Old Testament people would have known there was a man named Elisha, who uh, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, who uh, actually wore hairy clothes and lived out in the wilderness. And they knew that there was a prophecy that Elijah would come again and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so now we have this guy, and it takes uh, Mark, in his quickness, takes the time to point out John's clothing and his eating habits. And I must point out here. John was the original hipster. What any other, whatever any other hipster wants to say, he had organic clothes, and he ate only organic, fresh, wild honey and locusts. I was going to say he's vegan, but I couldn't decide if locust counts as vegan or not. So he's a vegetarian at the very least. Let's go with that. Well, and I guess honey, that's a product of animals. So, well, are an- insects animals? Let's not get off that. But he was a hipster. He made his own clothes. He had a leather belt. He had this, this, uh, he had this ox hair tunic. And he ate only locusts and honey. I don't know if there's any dietitians here. That doesn't sound too appealing to me. But we're healthy. But he lived. He had the power of the Holy Spirit. And for them, though, this seems really weird. And it seems like a weird detail. But it would be like somebody showing up wearing a chin beard and a giant stove uh, top hat. It would be Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, come again. So they would have recognized that, uh, that this was someone who dressed up like Elijah. And they would have probably seen him do miracles. And so when they heard there's this guy who's dressing up like Elijah and he seems to be able to do these miracles, they were interested and they went out and they did what he said. And he had great success. It says that the whole Judean countryside, which is a huge area, came out to him. 
as well as Jerusalem, which was their, their capital city, their, their big city. They all came out to him to be baptized, and they repented of their sins. This is an amazing start to ministry. What a great platform for Jesus to step into. And you'd think, okay, so John has this great platform. Jesus should have stepped in, created this mega church, and just been able to take over all of Israel with this amazing ministry. But that's not the way it happens. Jesus actually does the opposite of what we think he should. Instead of going to the crowds, gathering them all around, and then doing everything he wants, he often, through his ministry, we'll see in the coming weeks, that he actually would run away from people. Crowds would gather, he would speak to them, and then he'd run away. Just when it was that time to just really like cement that, that deal, to really get them going where he wants to go, he'd run away. Jesus acts often in ways that just don't make sense to us. But so in verse 8, John is talking about this baptism, these two different baptisms. He says that he will baptize with water, but the one is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a loaded word in uh, different denominations. But essentially what... Baptism of, of water baptism back then signified was an outward cleansing. It was this, this decision that you were going to be cleansed and that you were going to follow after God. They still had to do other things to cleanse themselves internally of their sins. Internally, rather, of their sins. They had to, still had to sacrifice animals. They still had to do things. But he's talking about the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptism isn't an external cleansing. It's an internal cleansing. It's this purifying, refining fire of your insides. I love the way that, uh, that Pastor Neil would talk about this. One of the, the, the terms that we use synonymously in the Church of the Nazarene with baptism of the Holy Spirit is called entire sanctification, which is a loaded word because it almost makes it seem like you're completely perfect. But the way that he would summarize it is that your whole heart is a yes to God. So it means that, that you don't have holdouts in your life where you're holding back areas of sinfulness. So this baptism of this Holy Spirit is this step into obedience with Jesus. Where water baptism can be a beginning and a step, there's another one that the Holy Spirit brings on you, burns away sin and uncleanness. And it doesn't mean that you're completely perfect, that you have no times when you're disobedient, but it means that you want to follow God that you no longer want to sin. And so then, in verse 1, Jesus is given this grand introduction. He's called the Messiah, the Holy One, the Son of God. And then all of a sudden, in verse 9, he shows up on the scene, and it's very anticlimactic. The crowds don't, don't shout out, Hosanna, they don't, they don't cry out about Jesus. Instead, he just shows up at this anonymous person among the crowds, and it just seems like he's just baptized. And the, uh, the whole scene about the Holy Spirit, it says that Jesus saw that. It says that Jesus alone saw that. So nobody else even really noticed that Jesus was there and what was happening among them. And that's just the way God works. Often we, we uh, don't see what God is doing. It might be this amazing thing, but it's so hard to see. But we'll get back to that at, uh, towards the end. But Jesus, uh, surprisingly didn't come out of this amazing place. He came from this little small town called Nazareth, which was the tiniest little insignificant place that nobody cared about. And actually, our, our name as a denomination, Church of the Nazarene, is, comes from the idea that we follow Jesus, the Nazarene. So we aren't Nazarenes, because we're not from Nazareth, but we follow the Nazarene. 
So that's just a little aside. If you've ever wondered, what is that name about? That's what Church of the Nazarene means. It means we're followers of this Nazarene. And so when Jesus comes out of the, the, uh, the baptism, instead of air punching the sky like I did, it says that he looked up and he saw the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And that, I want to focus on this word, that heaven is torn open. Have you ever considered that before? A tear is something that's not easily repaired. It's not, it's not, it's not pulled aside. It's not something that, that is uh, done and then undone. A tear is something that no matter how much you try and put it back together, it's always going to look torn. And so his baptism is so significant because his ministry, this beginning of his ministry, actually tears a hole between heaven and earth. Before there was a separation, but Jesus coming and beginning his ministry starts to tear that separation apart. And what happens at the the beginning of his ministry, heaven is torn open, and then at the end of his ministry, as he dies on the cross, in the temple, there was a distinguishing curtain that marked between the Holy of Holies, where they could only go if priest, if he had went and been cleansed for days and followed all this order, could go into the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's spirit dwelled. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn. And the Bible takes the time to have the detail that it was torn from the top to the bottom. This isn't something that humans did. This is something that God did. So at the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry, he tears apart the differences. He comes to us and brings himself and the spirit to be among us. During the very beginning of the world, in Genesis, it says that the spirit was hovering over the waters. And then after that, God speaks and he begins to form the world and he begins to create everything that is in the universe. But at Jesus' baptism, Jesus is fully man and fully, fully God. The Holy Spirit hovers over Jesus, this man. Whereas the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament at the beginning of creation, eons ago, began creation by forming the world, by hovering. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit hovered, showing that he was transforming humanity. Where he created in the Old Testament, he was recreating in the New Testament. The time had come for him to restore humanity to their proper place. God's Spirit was moving powerfully. And then in verse, the next verse, it says that God the Father was pleased with Jesus in his obedience. And what a difference it means to have the approval of one's Father. What a difference it means. We seek the love of our mothers when we're natural. If we, if we have a boo-boo or we're sick, we want our mothers. Or when we get married, we want our wives to take care of us if we have a man cold. I heard, I won't say who it was, but there was a guy that texted his wife asking for a, a cold cloth uh, when he was sick and uh, from the other room. So she brought it to him. We, we, we want our moms. Or when we're married, our wives. We want, we want that comfort. We want that soft place to land. We want that person who's there who's nurturing us, caring for us. But the one thing that we want from our fathers is we want approval. We want that, well done, my son. Well done, my daughter. We want that. We need that. And that's what we need. And I'll get to this at the end, but some of us have father wounds that we never got that from our father. We never got that love. We never got that acceptance. Some of us had an awesome father. 
Some of us had a father who loved us, who cared for us, who, who spoke affirming things, but some of us didn't. And but the, the hope that we have is that we have a heavenly father that says, well done, I love you, I accept you. And he loved you enough before you followed him that he sent his, his one and only son, Jesus, to make a way. That's the love of the father that all of us can experience. But again, I'll touch on that at the end here. So the focus of this whole introduction and this series is about the, love, the life of Jesus. And it's going to be fast-paced and we're going to go through. But it's interesting because it's called the life of Jesus, but Mark doesn't give us very many details about Jesus' life if you think about it. Jesus' public ministry was three short years. And we think he was about 30 years old. So I'm right, I'm right in there, right around the prime as far as Jesus goes, but we'll see. I hope I got lots more years to go, but... Uh, but Jesus uh, had this, this very short time where he was doing public ministry. And we wish that we had the biography of Jesus. We're, we're obsessed with biographies of great leaders, of people. Uh, Karis and I watched Churchill the other day, which was about, I thought it was about his whole life, but it was about the 96 hours before D-Day with Churchill. And it was a little slow. I don't recommend it. But there's just this amazing thing that we have, that we just have this fascination. We want to know what made people tick. We want to know all the details. We want to know if their fathers didn't say they loved them or said they loved them. We want to know all the details about people. But we don't have that about Jesus. And maybe that's because we don't, well, it is because we don't need it. But maybe it's because it actually wouldn't be helpful to us. Because maybe if we knew too many details about his life and about his, his early life that we wouldn't be able to relate or we wouldn't be able to follow him. But Mark gives us very few details. But the main point, and the, probably one of the reasons that he doesn't give us a ton of details, is because it, it would divert us from the main point, which is the redemptive work of God through Jesus. So the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus that we look at, is about him redeeming our sins and making a way for us to have a relationship with him. So Jesus, it says was immediately in some translations, or I'm trying to remember the wording. I think it said, end of voice, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And then I love how Mark uses two verses to have cover 40 days of Jesus. This is his life. So 40 days, two little verses. And he says that Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Now, that's a very, that's a very uh, short thing to say, 40 days of temptation. So I want to ask a question. Is it a sin, or is it sin to feel tempted to sin? That's a bit wor- weird wording. But is it a sin to feel temptation? No. But we often allow ourselves to be tricked that it is. And I don't, I'm not asking for hands up or anything, but... There are times when, when we're tricked into thinking that it is sin to be tempted. That we think, well, I've already thought about it, I've already considered it, I've already gone this far. I might as well go the rest of the way. But Jesus was tempted, and he never sinned. Now, I don't know about any of you, but imagine 40 days straight of temptation. 40 days straight, and Jesus neither ate nor drank which is a miracle in and of itself. And it says the angels attended him, but he was around wild animals, which that alone would be scary. 
but 40 days of being tempted. And not just by just any kind of temptation. He was tempted by the best tempter there is. Whether you want to call him the best what he did or the worst of what he did, whatever you want to call him, Satan himself tempted Jesus for 40 days straight. So if you can imagine uh, what it feels like to be tempted, imagine that for 40 days straight. And imagine every temptation imaginable during that time. Now, uh, Satan is never mentioned again in this, after this point. This is the only time that Satan is mentioned. There's uh, mention about his work or about other things, but as the person, Satan is never mentioned again in the whole rest of this gospel. And the reason is, that's somewhat easy to miss, is that Jesus had a decisive and clear victory over Satan. Satan had his best run at Jesus for 40 days straight, and he had nothing. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never gave in to that temptation. Now, for me, just 40 days without eating sounds painful and sounds like if, if, if he's talking about turning uh, stones into bread, that would sound pretty good at that point. If, maybe he had a pizza. I don't know if there was pizza back then, but that would be pretty tempting to me at that point. But it, he resists over that, which is amazing. But the, the amazing thing about that is that no matter the temptation that you go through, Jesus has been there. No matter the depth of pain that you feel at trying to resist temptation, Jesus has felt it worse, which isn't to minimize your pain, but it means that he understands what you're going through. He doesn't, he doesn't make that small. He understands that pain, that frustration, that hardship. He knows what you're feeling. But the amazing thing is that he can give you victory over that because he has been victorious over that. You don't have to be strong enough because he can be strong enough. That's the amazing thing. Now, John, uh, the last two verses here, he proclaims the, the start of Jesus' ministry. And then, just in the way Mark does, John's ministry is over, and Jesus begins. And he starts, uh, he starts proclaiming about Jesus. His coming, and now he has come, Jesus starts proclaiming himself. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, John helped to prepare them by telling them to repent as well. And repentance is a turning towards God. It's a turning away from rejection of God, a turning away from disobedience, and a literal turning towards God. And it, it requires a change of outlook, expectations, and commitments, which is essentially everything. It means a change of your entire life, a change of, of what, you, what you are hoping to gain at the end of your life. We're looking towards heaven. Expectations of rather than having a, a life full of pleasure and, and endless happiness per se, it means that we're accepting a life of whatever Jesus wants to give us, whether it's suffering and hardship or pure joy all the time. And the lastly, it's commitments. It's rather than being committed to ourselves and our own wants, our own desires, it's being committed to Jesus. Now I want to say that Jesus has this upside-down kingdom. But the joy that we have is that Jesus has made a way for us through anything that we are, we are suffering through. In the, uh, in the, over Christmas, we studied how God is with us through some of the hardest times of life. And the reason that he's able to do that is because Jesus went through the hardest things that we could possibly imagine. So Jesus is with us no matter what we're doing. Now, the Jewish people... We're surprised by Jesus. 
because he didn't fit into the box that they had thought he would fit in. He didn't come and he didn't kick out Caesar and he didn't, he didn't overthrow their earthly rulers. He actually came to overthrow sin and death. And the, the battle of life and death actually takes place on a cosmic stage. So it takes place in this unseen spiritual realm. And so that's why it's so hard sometimes to think that God is actually at work. That God is actually moving powerfully. And it's so easy for people who don't follow after Jesus to dismiss God. And say, well, if God is so great, why is there this? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there hardship? Why is there sickness? If God was so great, then why, why, why? But the whole power of God appears in weakness. The whole power of God appears in one who came out of a small town, out of the middle of nowhere, who came in quietly, who ran away from crowds, because what he was seen wasn't to be done by human eyes, and it wasn't even to be revealed by many people who wouldn't choose to see what it is. Instead, what it means is that he came to give comfort for those who would seek him. He promised that those who seek him would find him. That those who truly understand what it is to be a follower of Jesus have comfort no matter the desert that they're going through. No matter the hardship that they go through. All that there is is to follow Jesus. Because if you're in the wilderness, don't worry, he's already been there. If you're in hardship, he's already faced that hardship. Now Jesus is king. But after 2,000 years since his death, of praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God's purposes often seem eclipsed. Sometimes we, we can lose hope. We can think there's so much bad in the world. There's so many Christians that are getting persecuted and killed. And many others have become complacent or have lost the sense of urgency or immediacy of God's reign. We think, well, I just need to bunker down and just hold out until Jesus comes back. But if we've been praying for God's kingdom to come, then why aren't more people urgent? Why, why is this happening? It's because human actions may determine our own personal uh, fate, whether or not we want to choose to accept Jesus' love or not. But all of the plan of redemption is in God's hands. And it will come in his timing and in his way. And that's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to accept that God's timing is perfect. That what he wants to do will happen, no matter whether we want it to or not. But our choice is that we get to choose which side we will be on. Do we want to be on the side of God's kingdom of heaven, or do we want to choose to follow the kingdom of darkness? The beginning of Jesus' ministry was so significant because he tore the veil between heaven and earth. And then he tore the, the veil at the end of his ministry between the Holy of Holies, the temple, his Holy Spirit's residence, and then made a way for the Holy Spirit to be residence within us. But we have the choice whether we participate in that or not. Jesus has done his part, but our part is whether or not we repent and we believe. And I won't minimize that. Belief is hard sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to believe in this upside-down kingdom when we don't necessarily see the evidence. We know that maybe God is real, but how do we show that to other people other than how we live our lives? How do we convince someone to have hope in God when they can't see him, feel him, or touch him? How can we, how can we show somebody what it is to be loved by God and to love God 
when we have a hard time understanding it ourselves sometimes? How do we do it? The only way that we can do it is through repentance and belief in God. And to hope, we have to choose in hope. So what, what are you experiencing this morning? Are you maybe allowing the enemy to have a foothold in your life, an area of sin that you haven't repented? Is there an area in your life that, that maybe is a holdout where you're saying, well, God can have all the rest of me, but not this one area. I want to do what I want to do in this little area. If so, then repent and believe that God has already won the victory over sin and death. God has already won the victory over that temptation, that you don't need to struggle with that anymore. Just give it to God and surrender. Do you believe that God truly prepared a way for you to have a relationship with him? Or are you trying to earn his love? Are you trying to earn his forgiveness? Now, I'm not saying that good works aren't a bad, are a bad thing. Good works are still good works. But there's a huge difference between a good work that is done because God loves you and a good work that is done so that God will love you. God loves you already. The good works are a result of that love. Obedience is a result of knowing that you're loved by God. So repent, if so, and believe that Jesus has already prayed the price for your sin and you don't have to earn it. Now, as I said earlier, many people have a father wound in their life. Many people struggle with whether or not they're loved and accepted by their fathers. Some fathers have never told their children whether, that they love them or that they're proud of them. Many fathers do love their children, but they don't know how to express it. Maybe they didn't know, their father didn't love them, so they don't know how to express it. And maybe, maybe you were blessed with an awesome earthly father that loved you, that cared for you, that, that they were so awesome. And that is great, and that is a wonderful blessing. But either way, all of us have a heavenly father that loves us perfectly, that loves us, that cares for us, that wants a relationship with you that wants to put you on his knee and say, I love you, my child. That you are accepted, that you're cared for. Now, the hope of the gospel isn't that Jesus has made a way so that if we work hard enough, we'll get there. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus has already done the work and that we just need to accept that love and that grace and that mercy and that Father's love. What a beautiful thing it is. And what a blessed opportunity we have to share in that and to share it with other people. Now, the truth has been written down by witnesses all throughout history, proclaimed by those who have experienced it, and the final step is left for each one of us to decide whether or not we want to be a part of this. Now, I want to challenge you this morning with three different ways to respond to the message of the good news to Jesus in faith. And the first is to read, to begin reading the Gospel of Mark. The Holy Spirit moves powerfully when we read the Bible. And so I truly think that's one of the best ways for us to hear God's voice. Read his word and hear what Jesus wants to say to you himself. And so uh, the second is to repent. There's something amazing that happens when you write down and pray through your sins. You literally write it down. And then you can take that piece of paper after, crumple it up, throw it in the fire, do whatever you want with it and know that you are cleansed when you repent your sins. When you confess them to God in prayer, he forgives you. No matter what you have done. No matter what you haven't done. God forgives you. That's the amazing thing. You know, sometimes we, we struggle that we think that 
well, uh, I need to beat myself up about this because it's really bad. And yes, there's, there's consequences to sin, but we don't need to take a beating because Jesus already did. And so repent of your sins. And if uh, it's helpful for you, take a friend or a family member and pray with them. Ask them to pray for you. And then lastly, rejoice. You can truly rejoice because Jesus' ministry tore a hole in heaven to come down and be among you, to be with you, to be beside you, to be helping you. Jesus loved you enough that he did that for you. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. You are never alone. So how is Jesus' spirit prompting you this morning and what are you going to do about it? How is Jesus' spirit prompting you? As the worship team comes forward, just think on that, dwell on that. Let us respond this morning with what God is doing in our lives. Maybe you need to sit there and pray. Maybe you need to stand, lift your hands, and worship God powerfully. Whatever it is, do not leave this place without responding to what God is doing in your lives. So would you join me in prayer as Daryl and his team get it set up here? Jesus, I thank you for who you are. And we've begun the Gospel of Mark, and we have begun studying your your life, that your beginning of ministry. And Jesus, I thank you for the good news of the gospel that we don't have to be good enough, that you are good enough. That we can repent and believe and that is enough. And so I thank you, Jesus, for what you are doing in our lives and I pray that you would move powerfully here this morning. That as we, as we sit and reflect and worship you or as we lift our hands and worship you out loud with voices Lord, I pray that you would move powerfully, that your spirit would rest on every single person here and dwell them, and that those that need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that they would receive it. And so I thank you, Jesus, for what you are doing and what you are going to do. Amen.